It's a beautiful time to get together with your brothers and sisters and continue the joy that you have right here this morning as we are gathered in the name of our mighty God. Now, any time that a pastor, an elder, a minister approaches a part of Scripture that addresses the matter of pastoral support, in other words, financial support for ministers, he should do so cautiously. He should do so with a humble heart. The church, friends, is not a business. The church is a people, a people who are set aside for the glory of God and who live to worship the God who has saved us and made us who we are now. Our bottom line, the most important thing that drives this church as an organization is not that the church would operate in the black financially. Our bottom line is not even that we would get as many people through the door as we possibly can each Sunday. Many churches have gotten that out of line and have done some horrendous things to get people into churches. Our bottom line is to remain faithful, faithful to the gospel charge that Jesus laid out to his churches 2,000 years ago. So we don't engineer the messages to make you think that you need to give us more money. If you pay attention to the section of our bulletin that records the statistics on giving and keeps track of where we are at in relationship to our yearly budget, you will notice that the Lord has been very kind to us. He's been faithful in providing for our needs. We have what we need to do all the things that we have desired to do for this year. And we have strong reserves set aside in our emergency fund in case something should come up. To God be the glory for that. Amen? But when we come across a portion of Scripture that speaks to finances, we preach it. We preach it faithfully. We preach it without apology for every bit of God's Word is profitable for the people of God. And that's what we will do this morning as Paul continues in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 to address the topic of compensation for apostles and other leaders in the church. So if you've got your Bibles, what we're going to do is we're going to begin with the section that we studied last week, not the whole part, but I want us to start looking at verse 11 because we want to set the text up in context. So beginning at verse 11 of 1 Corinthians Chapter 9, I'm going to begin reading the section we're going to be looking at today. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things among you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple in the temple service, get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial things. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel... That gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? What in my, that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel." Would you bow your heads with me as we have a word of prayer together? Most Holy One, 
We know that money is not inconsequential or your scripture would not speak of it. It would not be written in these, this holy book that you have given to us that contains everything we need for life and godliness. You know what we need, Lord. You are the one who provides it for us. And so we rejoice in the supplication you provide. But the culture that we live in, Lord, so often overemphasizes material wealth. It overemphasizes financial gain. And so we ask, Lord God, that you would reorder our hearts, that you would remind us that our only true security is not in our bank accounts or in the things that we own, but in the knowledge that there is nothing that is not owned by you, Lord God, that you are truly the Lord of all things and all things are at your disposal. So help us to see how we might exalt your name with what you have given to us. Order our affections properly here today, Lord. Help us to love what matters most and increase our desire to honor you, Lord God, with everything that we have, our resources, our time, our talents, with our minds. Please, Holy Spirit, give us understanding and enlightenment. And if there's anyone here today who approaches this word without the Spirit, I pray, God, that you would do a mighty work, that the gospel seed would wake them up to eternal life even here today as I preach. I am but a feeble vessel, Lord God, so help me to get out of the way of this text. Do your work through me. May you be glorified in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Rights. Rights are still in view here, namely the rights of those who preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word in the Greek, you might remember, is exousia. It's not a topic that Paul speaks very often of. He would much rather speak of how we are beholden to this Lord who has done all things for us. So many people are champions of their rights and their privileges, but they don't realize that if Christ does not set us free, then we are utter slaves to our temptation. But Paul does help us to look at certain rights that have been put forth, and he does so in the beginning of the chapter, the section of which I read just now. Apostles, elders, leaders in the church, they have the right to eat. They have the right to drink. They have the right to marry a believing wife. They have the right to work for a living. But by the section that we are studying today, as we get to verses 15 through 18, Paul has narrowed his focus specifically to a minister's right to draw a salary for their labors from the churches where they serve. It is a little strange then that Paul has argued so thoroughly to prove that there is nothing wrong with pastoral pay, only to strongly defend his own right to turn that pay down. Verse 15, but I have made no use of these rights. See, Paul has not accepted a regular salary from the congregations that he helps, nor does he have any intention of doing so. Now, to be sure, there are times when Paul was given a special gift after he had left a place. The Macedonians sent him a gift to support his ministry. Uh, later on, I believe the Philippian church sent him a gift that he received with gratitude. But while he's ministering among the people, he does not allow them to pay for his needs. Rather than allow them to do that, Paul insists on working a regular job in the hours that he is not preaching the gospel. Specifically, he was a tradesman. He made tents. And as you can imagine, in a culture like that, tents were very, very important. They were some of the primary dwelling places of the people. So rather than letting the church pay for his food, his lodging, his clothing, his study materials, he gave up that right. And he chose to pay for those things 
with money that he earned outside of the church by the sweat of his own brow. And that isn't going to change anytime soon for Paul. He says, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. See, he's not pulling one of those things where he says, oh, no, 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 I don't want your money. And then he's waiting for them to say, oh, but we insist. He says, okay, if you insist. He's not, he's not pulling one of those, those bait and switches on them, right? He has no intention of collecting a salary from these churches. Remember, Paul has a point to make regarding his own personal decision to remain bivocational. But he doesn't want to damage the reputation of the other ministers who do receive salaries. In fact, he's wanting to make sure that those who are supported by their local churches don't look bad because of his decision not to be. And this is why he takes no chances. And he clearly shows from logic and then from scriptural precedence and then from Christ's own authority that a workman is, in fact, worthy of his wages. So why doesn't Paul utilize this right? In verses 5 through 18, Paul will reveal his motivation for denying the very right that he defends that others take advantage of. He says in verse 16, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. Now, I don't know if you... Like that stuck in your throat a little bit. When I was reading it a minute earlier, the use of the word boasting here, it has the potential to throw, it off, throw us all off, doesn't it? Anytime we hear a word like boasting, Scripture gives us cause for concern. We might think, or it might come to mind, the very most basic text that describes the way that we are saved by grace, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. So why is Paul saying he wants to be able to boast if our salvation is something we cannot in any way boast about? When it comes to our redemption, when it comes from us going from dead in our sins and alienated from Christ and then being brought near to the Lord God, washed clean and forgiven and put in the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, this is all his work. He gets all the credit for it. There is zero room for us to boast about it. So Paul knows this. Paul preached this. So he cannot be talking about boasting in his salvation as if he had something to do with it. We can eliminate that from what Paul means here. We might also think of a verse uh, such as James chapter 4 where the brother of Jesus warns of the practical harm that boasting can have to the church of God. He says in verses 14 through 16, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. So Paul can't be boasting in his arrogance. The word clearly preaches against that kind of an attitude where we think about ourselves more highly than other people. We put ourselves up on a pedestal. Notice that James doesn't say that all boasting is evil. He says all such boasting, all boasting like he has just described and pointed out in the preceding verses, all that kind of boasting is evil. All boasting that puts ourselves on that pedestal and that exalts 
our own hearts and minds, instead of exalting and glorying in the Lord, must be excluded from us if we are believers. So that is not the kind of boasting that Paul's talking about here in 1 Corinthians 9. This is not Paul boasting that he is better than the other church leaders who accept compensation from their congregations. Neither is he boasting in a way that will puff up his own pride and inflate his ego. You might ask, but how can you know that, Pastor? How can you know Paul's heart? How do you know that's not what he's shooting for? Well, we know that because Paul set the groundwork for this whole letter back in chapter 1. Do you remember it? Paul began this letter with a very stern warning to the Corinthians who were allowing divisions to creep into their congregation and cause disunity. There were people who preferred certain leaders over others, and so battle lines were being drawn. People were listening to one apostle and ignoring others, were pretending as if the one thing that their guy said was more important and more authoritative than what the other apostles were bringing forth to them. And so in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul had said, God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. This isn't about celebrity pastors here. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring, nothing, bring to nothing those things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. No man has any business boasting in himself, since every man is a sinful nothing apart from the grace that only God can give. He goes on to say in chapter 1, verse 31, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Do you remember that? It's a while ago that we learned that. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. So if Paul is now returning to this concept of boasting and he desires to boast, he's trying to defend his ability to boast, what is he boasting in church? He's boasting in his Lord. Whenever Paul speaks of boasting in any of his letters, he does it quite frequently, he's contrasting the useless boasting of sinful man to a righteous boasting that draws attention to what Jesus has done and for what Jesus is. You can look at 2 Corinthians 10 and 12. You can look in Galatians 6, verse 14. There's lots of evidence of Paul doing this. So unless Paul is blatantly contradicting himself, and he's not, then he isn't trying to make himself look great he is thinking about his, how his actions are going to produce glory for the Lord Jesus. Now, the, the verb that is used here for boasting is worth a closer look in the Greek, the original language. Okay? This is kaukema. Kaukema is a word that primarily means to brag or boast, but it carries some additional meanings with it. It can mean to take glory in something. It can mean to revel in something that brings us joy or happiness. And in fact, this same term, kaukema, in Philippians 1, 3, and 5, speak to glorying in the Lord. Philippians chapter 1, verse 26, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory, kaukema, in Christ Jesus. Not in Paul, but in Christ Jesus, because of my coming to you again. So Paul, even talking to the Philippians, says, we hope that you'll be able to rejoice in what God provides to the ministry of the saints as he sends me to you to help you to grow as a church. And then in Philippians 3.3, he says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. Put no confidence in the flesh. 
Same exact root verb there, just uh, conjugated differently to reflect on the fact that it's speaking of the whole church, on we. So if you look at the record of how this term is used, there's 11 appearances in the New Testament. And if you go to the King James Version of the Bible, the King James Version chooses to translate this term, kaukima, as to rejoice in. To rejoice in five times out of the 11. To rejoice in Jesus. To rejoice in. So that should change the way that we think of the word a little bit, doesn't it? That adds an appropriate dimension to our understanding of what Paul was trying to communicate with this term when he says, I don't want anybody to take this boast away from me. He's boasting in the Lord in whom he has great joy and whom he glories. It's not that Paul is looking for an excuse to show off. It's not that he wants a bunch of credit and acknowledgement. Paul is wanting to preserve every opportunity to exalt God for the product of the ministry there. He's wanting to keep boasting in Christ because it brings him great joy, great joy to do so. Paul is mindful of the fact that if people were to start thinking of Paul or the other apostles as financially minded gold diggers, as opportunists who see the church as a means by which they will make a name for themselves and swell their wallet, if that's the way that people are thinking about the apostles, it's going to do serious harm to the work and the ministry that they are trying to accomplish. And so he wants to guard against that serious error. Everything we know about Paul indicates that he is anything but a boastful person. You might think back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. In that passage of Scripture, Paul describes himself to his protege, who is a fellow minister, to whom you might think, well, you know, who do you brag to the most? Maybe your co-workers? No, Paul is writing to this man who's below him, and he describes himself as the chief of sinners. Christ came to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I am the chiefest of the sinners. He is confessing his own brokenness and his need for redemption. He was a murderer of Christians before God redeemed him and used him for holy things in the church. We might think of 1 Corinthians 15.8. Compared to other servants, Paul is an apostle. He describes himself as an apostle untimely born. In other words, all the other apostles, they spent time with the Lord Jesus and his earthly ministry they were able to see him together. And I'm one like born differently. I'm like the, the runt of the litter. I'm the one who came last, whom Christ appeared to on the Damascus road, who had no, no ties to Christ other than as a persecutor before I was called into this ministry. So he's self-deprecating in the way that he looks at his ministry. He's not there to build himself up. He wants others to recognize that he only can do anything because of glory and of eternal value because of the, the kindness that Jesus has shown to him. Now, of course, you could look at the other side of that, too, in Philippians 3. It's not like Paul was an absolute waste of a man. In Philippians 3, Paul describes that he was the pinnacle of the achievements that a Pharisee could accomplish in their lifetime before he came to Christ. I'll read that to you, and it'll be on the screen as well. Philippians 3, you can turn there in your own Bible if you'd like to follow along. Paul's describing himself to the Philippian church like this. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, 
a Pharisee, meaning one who kept not only the, the law of Moses, but additional laws that had been added to it, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. In other words, he was all in. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. In other words, he had a sparkling resume. Paul was the guy everybody else wanted to be like. But then he goes on in the very same passage to make it clear that all that the world would count as privilege and success in him, he himself has gone on to denounce. He has cast away as frivolous, as nothing, as garbage. That resume might sparkle to some, but to him, it's nothing more than a hindrance. He says in verse 7, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own which comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith. Assuming that Paul is being consistent with what he wrote earlier in the letter, any talk of a personal boast is actually a boast in the glory of Christ. Paul wants to live his life in such a way that he can give as much exaltation to the Savior as he possibly can. And so let's take a moment now to just zoom in and consider the nuts and the bolts of his explanation to us. In Paul's mind, preaching the gospel by itself is not a way for him to amplify his boasting in Christ. The simple act of preaching and serving the church and raising up disciples, that's not what he considers his boast. Why? Because he has no choice when it comes to preaching. He has to do it. Paul is a compelled man. He has been given a commission by Jesus. It is a necessity for him to do this work because he's been called by God to do it. And if he does not, he will have to answer to God for his disobedience. This compulsion is different than the kind of compulsion we're most familiar with. I am compelled to eat chocolate cake because I love it, right? There's no one who's got a gun to my head. This is all my responsibility, okay? I, that's my choice. I'm compelled inwardly to have that chocolate cake because it's so delicious. But this is a different kind of compulsion. This is an external compulsion pressed upon Paul from the outside, from above properly. It's not unlike what Jonah experienced. Jonah, who was called by God, he was already a prophet, already commissioned by God to speak the things of God to the people of God. But God said, Jonah, I want you to think differently about what the people of God can be. There is an uncircumcised people called Nineveh. I think you might be familiar with them, Jonah. They have slaughtered your people in the past. They would eradicate you in a moment if they could. But I'm going to call them to repentance. And I'm going to use you to do that. You, my prophet, will go. And you will preach. And they will turn. Jonah had an external compulsion forced upon him. Did he want to do that job? His actions proved that he wanted to do the opposite of that job. He wanted to be the Elijah to the prophets of Baal to Nineveh. He wanted to call fire down on these people. He hated them. 
And so rather than go and preach the good news to them and share the hope that can be had in Yahweh, he got on a boat and sailed away from them. He ran away from this compulsion. But listen, friends, God is not like us. He doesn't give it his best shot and hope it turns out well. God is sovereign. He is the Lord of all. And so this Jonah who, had, who wanted to have no business with Nineveh, who wanted to have no blessing to them, was forced by the hand of God to go back and to do the work that God had called him to do. God got his way in Jonah's life. His will will come to pass. And so likewise, Paul's entire life has been commandeered by God to do the work of gospel ministry. So Paul cannot pass the work off to someone else. He cannot say, well, you know, I don't really want to do this job, so like Moses and Aaron, I'm just going to have somebody else do the job. He can't do that. He's got to do it. He's compelled to do it. He can't put it off till later. He can't say, well, I'll get around to that. Let me just get some stuff in order here. Let me do my little thing for a little while, and then I'll get to it. No, he is called by God and forced into service by God. He's compelled. Paul cannot find a different way to be productive for God. God can't, uh, Paul can't go up to the mountains and just do a writing ministry and send his books down off the mountain. No, he is called to be an apostle. He must do what God commanded him to do. Why could he not boast in his preaching? Because he didn't choose to do it. God chose him to do it. You and I, Christian, if we are called to salvation, are not too different than Paul in regards to the way that we should see our personal freedoms. Paul is not the only one who has been commandeered for God's glory. We often think as believers that we should be looked upon with respect and honor for every simple little thing that we do that complies with the scripture. I, I give to the Lord and I volunteer my time and I give my attendance instead of going to football games. I, I'm a faithful person. As if we are totally free agents and any gesture we make towards holiness that sets aside even the littlest bit of our independence is a gesture that should be celebrated and applauded or that should earn divine favor with God. Friends, let me set you free from that. Our favor in God is not based upon what we do. It is based upon what Christ has done for us. And since He has done so much, the only reasonable act of worship would be for us to let him use not only a few hours of our week, but our entire life. Our life which was doomed to judgment and destruction, but was redeemed by the perfect blood of Jesus Christ, preserved by him. It's only appropriate that we let God use our whole life in any way he may choose. Because everything that's good in us comes from him. Turn to Luke chapter 17 for a moment give you a second to flip there. This is pretty much no one's favorite passage of Scripture. But I think it carries a real significance, church. And it could help us, I think, to have great joy if we really understand what it means. Luke chapter 17, verses 7 through 10. These are the words of our Savior. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once, Recline at the table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, 
and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? The answer to that is no, by the way. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty to do. We've only done what we should do. We ought not serve our king and obey his command because we can't wait for him to pat us on the back and pin a little gold star to our shirt. Our service to God is based entirely in the great works that he has poured upon us that we do not deserve, Christian. This is the mindset here described in Luke 17, 7 through 10, that leads Paul to introduce himself in almost every letter that he writes as the bond slave of Jesus Christ. Do you lead that like that when you talk to people? Hi, my name is Nick. I'm a slave of Jesus. I am I'm an utter servant. There's nothing about me that is of value apart from my connection to him. Is a bond slave all that Paul is? Most certainly not. But he does not shrink away from the title. He declares it up front without reservation. He wants us to be clear. Just because Jesus paid our debt, that doesn't mean that we can now run away from him free without another thought to the great price that Jesus paid to make us his own. Our every breath should be thanksgiving to God for the way that he has redeemed us, for he has bought us with a price, a very great and costly price. Neither does this compulsion mean that we must do the work that Jesus commands of us with a begrudging heart or with no sense of joy or gratitude. To the contrary, we were slaves to a terrible master before. We weren't free men that were made slaves. We were slaves to a terrible master, sin, sin and its temptations, which drove us into the ground, which made us weak and deceived us, a master that beat us relentlessly and cared not one ounce for our being. And we were purchased away from that wretched life into an existence where we have a beautiful master who loves us, who provides for our needs, who cares for us, who is noble and good, one who would even go so far as to make us his own children. That he wouldn't just keep us slaves, but that he would adopt us into his own home and family. So Paul cannot boast in his preaching because it is something he is compelled to do. He, that's his job. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul, like every Christian should, has an eternal gratitude for God and a proper reverence that is ever mindful that Paul will always be less than the God that he serves. All that God commands Paul to do is more than reasonable in light of what God has already done for him. Do you think that way, brother, sister in the Lord? Do you think like Paul thinks in that regard? When you do a good deed before the Lord, do you marvel at the fact that by his grace you can do anything good at all? Does it surprise you that you can do anything of eternal value when, when God does something good in you? Do you thank the Lord that somebody who is wretched and lost can now be used for his glory? Or do you say, yep, yeah, that's what I expected. You know, that's, 
I'm glad he brought me onto the team because without me, that probably would not have gotten done that way. Do you make a little mental note of your deed and then add the credit of that religious action to your spiritual account in heaven and expect that later on, when you go to God in prayer, that you can cash in on that good deed and the Lord will have to answer you favorably and give you what you want because you did all those things for the Lord that might sound a little ridiculous to us, friends, but we think and feel that way sometimes if our, the object of our faith is not constantly Christ. We get caught up in what we do as Christians, and we think that somehow God owes us some favor. Maybe he didn't owe it to us back when we were sinners, but now look at all the great things we're doing. Of course, if I'm good, God must be good to me. That attitude is consistent with the sin nature that used to rule us, friends. But it is utterly inconsistent with the heart and soul of one who's been justified by Christ. When you examine the fallen nature of the world around you, do you look down your nose at all those people who don't understand what you've been able to understand? Who think they have it all figured out but don't have a clue? Do you look down at them? Do you judge them for not being able to grasp the lofty things of God that you have come to hold in your hands? If so, newsflash, Christian. You don't believe these good doctrines with your own faith. You believe them with the faith that God gave to you. So you can't boast of your understanding because it didn't originate in your heart and in your mind. It's what God made you to be. It is a gift, as Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says. It is His doing if you will boast in anything, believer, boast in the Lord who saved you graciously, who took the darkness out of you and replaced it with light. Our righteousness, friends, is like filthy rags before the Lord. Paul knows that. So preaching is not itself a boast for him. He's got to do it. Whether or not he's getting paid to do it, he's got to do it. So then, thinking carefully, what is the preacher's reward? What motivates him to reject this compensation? Were we to think about it just logically, we might draw our own conclusions. We might come up with some hypotheses. Could it be that by giving up his pay, Paul is able to guard his own heart from the very human pitfall of letting the money become too important to him? We've seen examples of this, haven't we? We had a terrible example of this even in the kingdom of God just last year when Jerry Falwell Jr., who's the president of Liberty University, a conservative Christian university, a school that requires much of its students in a way of signing a contract and promising to be holy, he had to resign his post. Why? Because, man, when you're the president of such a big, influential organization, there's a lot of money to be had in that organization. And when Jerry got his hands on a lot of it, he started to act as if he was above the law of God. And more and more evidence began to surface that Jerry was doing the very things he was telling his students they should not do. That he was engaged in immoral sexual activity. That he was lying to people. That he was living the life of one who did not have Christ as Savior. So maybe that's what Paul is doing here in rejecting his salary. Maybe we might think in our logic that's why the Lord or that's why Paul is not going to receive a salary from his churches. And that's a reasonable hypothesis, but it's not what Paul is focused on here. Paul hasn't forsaken money altogether, has he? He's just getting it outside of the church. 
And if he didn't guard his heart, he could still idolize that money. It could still be a temptation to him. He could still spend too much time doing tent making and not enough time and energy preaching the word, preparing to teach, or in shepherding the young congregations that he's so involved with. So that's not what the word here says is Paul's motivation. So we make up another theory. Perhaps it could be that by giving up his pay, Paul is able to disarm anybody who's an opponent to him. Some of whom, at least in Thessalonica, maybe in Corinth too, who may have suggested that Paul was a hired gun and not a faithful minister. Maybe he's just in it for the money, so why should we listen to what he has to say? Maybe that's why he gave up his pay. But those are not the benefits that Paul describes here in these verses. In fact, at least in Corinth, refusing to, to be paid for his services might actually make him come across as weak to those brothers and sisters. As we spoke about last week, many of them coming from a Gentile background, some held to the idea that if a, if a philosopher or a guru couldn't get paid for his philosophy, it wasn't worth anything. So he might actually be shooting himself in the foot practically by not taking his salary because many of those Gentile believers might think, well... Man, why are we going to listen to Paul? He's not even paid for what he does, but Apollos takes a salary. Let's listen to him. So that's not the reasoning here. Friends, it's natural for us to speculate about Paul's motives, but really, we don't need to guess. Paul tells us what his reward is. And though what motivates Paul might seem strange to you, it is personally important to Paul. How might Paul boast in Christ in a way that he is not compelled to boast in Christ in a way that is not already demanded of him by the Lord. He can do it by voluntarily giving up something that he has a right to. And that is pastoral pay. That is why he says in verse 17, for I do this of my own will. If I do this of my own will, I have a reward. The, there is a word play in the Greek here that's, that's worth noting here. It's almost as if Paul is saying, that his pay is presenting the gospel without pay. That's what, he, that's what his pay is. That's what he considers his joy and his reward. His reward is that he gave what little he had to give. His reward, his boast in Christ, is that he is able to forgo a personal blessing that he's entitled to. As a side benefit, his determination to earn his own money is a means of protecting the gospel that means so much more to him than money ever will. But the real joy he has and the reason why he would rather die than give up this privilege is because he wants to give something back to the Lord that he's not compelled to give back. He's saying, essentially, I love my Savior so much. I love his kingdom so much that I want to be able to do something good for it. Not something demanded of me, but something voluntary, something optional. He's not trying to pay God back for his salvation, by the way. Don't get it twisted here. You can contribute nothing to salvation. Paul knows that. And even though Paul is doing this voluntarily, this gesture is not completely apart from the Spirit either. This is the product of the Spirit of God working in Paul's heart to make him love the things that matter most. All the good that we can do is enabled by the Spirit. Paul simply wants to do this thing that isn't required of him because he doesn't just serve God because he's required to. He serves God out of love, out of adoration, respect, gratitude. Think of Paul's motive. Think of his heart. And compare it to the average person who confesses Christ. I think most people who identify with Jesus, including myself at times, 
aren't even doing the things that are the normal responsibilities of a Christian, the things that we are compelled to do, let alone going above and beyond to show our love and affection for the Lord God by surrendering every bit of our life to Him. Paul was doing those things, but his love and gratitude for Jesus compelled him to go beyond what he was compelled to do, to do something not because it was required of him, but because he wanted to. It is my pastoral prayer that your love for the Lord and my own love for the Lord would mature to such a degree that we are no longer interested in just doing the bare minimum to be considered by ourselves and by others as true believers, but that our respect and passion for salvation and for his word and for his bride, the church, would bloom into such a source of joy for us that we would gladly be given over to whatever the Lord God would call for us, even things that he's not demanding that we do. That in any way that we could give or serve or love others, that we would want to do this. As the preacher of this passage, friends, I am in an interesting position here because I cannot compel you to do something along the lines of what Paul did. He was not compelled to give up his salary. Neither could I compel you to somehow give more than what God asks you to give. I'm only encouraging you to think of the joy that you have when you surrender yourself to God in such an extent that you want that for yourself. I hope Paul's example will resonate with you this happy morning as the example of one who loved the Lord so greatly that it was his joy to set aside whatever in his flesh might have been his right, whatever that in his flesh he might have seen as a prize before, his greater prize is putting that to the side so that Christ can be lifted up. So content was Paul to forgo his blessing that he would rather die than be robbed of that kind of joy. In Paul's mind, Forgoing his pay was not a huge sacrifice. It's the least that he could do. Having received, he is now happy and determined to freely give. Not so that he can boast like an arrogant show-off, but so that he can know that the name of Jesus is being glorified and that his own freedom was being applied to that noble goal. Let's pray together in conclusion. God, we thank you for your grace and we do ask that you would be freely working within us by the power of your spirit to work your goodwill in us, Lord, that we would have desires that more closely match what you would want, that even in those areas of our lives where we have freedom to do what we want, freedoms to choose, that we would never be so selfish as to ignore that our choices affect your glory. They affect our testimony of who you are. God, may we be happy, not compelled, but happy, to give to you even beyond what you have called a Christian to give, that we would love to serve you, that we would love to love one another, even those who may have offended us and are difficult to love because we know we've offended you. We know that we are difficult for you to love, O oh God of grace and perfection, and yet your favor is upon those whom you've called into your family. So God, I pray that we would reconsider our own priorities this morning, Lord, that we would think of the example of Paul who properly is giving us an example of Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Jesus, Paul will say in chapter 11, that Jesus so loved his God that he was willing to go to every extreme to do what would glorify him and exalt him. May we think in such a way. 
Thank you, Jesus Christ, for being all that we need. We love you. And we know that you will love us even if we fall short of this task. But we're faithful, Lord. And we're trusting that you are going to make us understand this and apply it better in a way that your, your church will get stronger and that we will grow and be more edified and ready to do the works you've called us to do. And we pray this in Jesus' perfect name. Amen.